a lot of evidence demonstrating that the placenta function is is not okay in a, a PCOS pregnancy. Uh, we have demonstrated that um, aromatase is, is uh, disturbed and, and a lot of the stereogenic markers are disturbed in the placenta, which means that due to these disturbances, it can go via the placenta and actually affect the fetus. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very excited today to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome with Professor Elizabeth Steiner-Victorin. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Uh, thanks. Hi, Nathan. It's fine. Good. Thanks You're for joining summer me. summer here? Su- summer, yeah. You, you just come off a, a lovely summer holiday in Italy. Yes. So um, I'm hoping you can get your head back into um, talking about all about your work on polycystic ovarian syndrome. So um, you've done a fair bit of research in this area and starting to uncover some potential drivers beyond, I suppose, the, the well-known triad or the, the circular pathway of insulin resistance and hyperandrogenism. Um, so we'll dive into that, but maybe just before we get into too much detail, can you give a bit of a background on your research and um, how you got to this point? Yeah, um, yes, I'm, I'm a PhD in, in, and a professor in reproductive physiology and work at Karolinska and um, Karolinska Institute at the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology. And ever since I did my PhD at 2000, I have been working with PCOS and PCOS research. At, at the start, I, uh, my research were very much focused on, on how non-pharmacological treatment could actually relieve the symptoms of uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, which we can maybe come back to later in our talk. Um, but over the this past 20 years, I've, more and more focus have been on investigating and trying to understand the, the background of PCOS. And, and, and uh, it is a complex disorder and, and uh, likely there is no single answer either to the mechanism behind the syndrome. But um, more and more we, we try to understand the pathophysiology to, to be able actually to, to direct the treatment uh, better. When to treat, how to treat, and, and when to diagnose, and, and how to diagnose, and so on. And if we can predict whether a girl, a young girl, can or will develop PCOS. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I'm really curious to look into um, uh, the physiology around pregnancy and, and early early childhood that eventuates in uh, PCOS in an older adult female. Um, but before we do, perhaps can you just give a bit of a, a rough synopsis of signs, symptoms, prevalence of PCOS? Yeah, usually um, the early signs are um, of PCOS is uh, in the young girl, acne and the disturbing hair growth, 
and uh, maybe strange bleeding patterns or disturbed bleeding patterns can even be a delayed menarche. Mm. And, uh, and sometimes it's also uh, more prevalent in, in obese uh, young girls. And usually, I think it is um, maybe depending on where you live, because it's different from countries, uh, how quick they are in, in actually giving a diagnosis. And it's also something that is debated when to diagnose. Right. But many of these girls, they seek help and, and uh, get uh, something that lower their androgen levels because that is what is causing their acne and, hype and, and disturbing hair growth. So they are usually on OCP without always getting the diagnose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think in one sense it is a bit a problem if they are not getting the diagnose because if you get the diagnose, you can also intervene and know, learn about the syndrome, how to handle it. Right. Um, and could you describe the, yeah, as the well-known, um, it's like a feed-forward cycle between insulin and androgens in women with PCOS? Um, yeah, the, the, both the insulin and, and androgens are the driver. I would say that it's also depending on the different researchers. Right. Uh, I believe that the, the androgens are the main driver. Ah. Um, although if we go, we will talk a bit more about the genetics, uh, I guess. And um, both genes um, or SNPs, that are involved in the regulation of um, the ovaries, like DENDA-1A and so on, they cause the, the hyperandrianemia and drive um, the andrian production. Um, but also genes linked to insulin resistance and, and also type 2 diabetes, that is involved in the hyperinsulinemia and, and uh, also the pancreatic uh, function, beta cell function. So I would say we still don't know. Okay. Uh, if we expose animals or mice for, for androgens, they develop a very classic PCOS-like phenotype with irregular cycles, polycystic ovaries. And, yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult to, to measure hyperandrianism <laughs> or hirsutism in, in mice. But, in mice, yeah. Um, they get elevated androgen levels, of course. Okay. And if you go do the same with insulin, they give uh, mice insulin. They also get an, an very similar PCOS-like phenotype. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, it is, science still is unsure which one's causing what. Is there a, um, an issue with resistance to negative feedback to the androgens in PCOS? Yes, there there is an, an definitely an issue uh, related to the uh, feedback to the HPG actual axis. So it seems that the gonadotropin releasing hormone, the GnRH neurons in hypothalamus, they are somewhat resistant to to both estrogen and progesterone and and also androgens, um, which 
you would expect if you have high andrians and maybe also somewhat increased estrogen due to the high andrian levels, that you would have a suppressed GnRH and a suppressed LH and FSH. Um, but instead, it's it's rather increased. You have an increased pulse frequency in, in, of GnRH, an increased LH uh, pulse frequency and amplitude which stimulates uh, the theca cells in the ovaries to mm. produce more androgens. Mm. And is so, has science um, elucidated why that's occurring? Is there, are there like genes or SNPs involved in the, the hypothalamus and the pituitary that makes them um, resistant to these, this negative feedback? Um, if, if there are the SNPs, and yes, there are um, both the FSH beta and, right. and also the AMH uh, receptor, uh, which have been found also in, in the brain, uh, although it's mainly acting in the granulosa cells in, in the ovaries. Okay. So, yes, there are genes that are involved. All right. So on genetics, um, you've done some work, I believe, on looking at genetics and the, its contribution to PCOS. So even though there's a, a genetic component that doesn't explain the, the prevalence, would that be correct? And well, can you describe the, the relationship between genetics and PCOS? Um, yeah. First of all, the, the, there are a familial contribution of, of PCOS mm. that is known from twin studies and so on. And uh, I think it was around 2011, uh, the first genome-wide association scan study came out from China uh, with a reasonable number of, of uh, patients uh, or subjects included. And they identified a number of, of uh, SNPs uh, or susceptible loci for that was associated with PCOS. And later on, this was replicated and, and more um, genes were identified. And um, But still, it, it, there are around 20 or somewhat more SNPs identified, um, but they do not actually explain so much about the... the the, the disease, so to say. So likely there are other uh, like rare genetic variants uh, that are involved. And here, I think it's, it's quite interesting that by this whole genome sequencing um, and targeted approaches, they looked into this DENDA1A, for example, which is really interesting. And, um, and also RABB5, um, that seems to drive this uh, androgen uh, secretion, production and secretion from the thicker cells in, in the ovary. But also the AMH, the receptor, and uh, which there are, I think, if I remember correctly, there were 37 rare AMH variants and 32 DENDA1A right. variants that have been identified. Um, I think we we have just started to scratch the the, the surface here, um, but there are like PCOS uh, risk scores that can be calculated now. Mm -hmm. They use this. Um, I'm I'm not an expert in this at all. This uh, more genetic tools that you do uh, 
Mendelian randomization, which is that you use uh, all uh, GIVA studies that have been that are out, um, and they you can use that to calculate risk scores and also what is actually causing uh, if it is the genetics that cause PCOS or and or the other way around. And I think that there are quite a number of those Mendelian randomization studies out there now, which is interesting, I would say. And what do those Mendelian um, studies show from the, a causal perspective? Yeah, this Mendelian randomization studies, uh, uh, one study that came out um, last year uh, from Ruth um, in Nature Medicine, but there's also one, um, I just found it in a recent study uh, that is not uh, published in PubMed, but it is in uh-huh. these bioarchives from a Finnish study, uh, Leinonen. And it's like a pre-publication study. Uh, but both these studies show that an increased odd ratio of uh, testosterone has a causal effect on development of, or of on PCOS. So it's really, really show that it right. is something. Yeah. But it also show that testosterone is has a causal effect of on type 2 diabetes. Right. And in women, but not in men. Interesting. Interesting. So it's a sexual dimorphic effect here. And um, also uh, uh, coming back to you, uh, your first question here reg- uh, regarding hyperanemia, hyperinsulinemia, mm. what is driving, and so on. Um, I'm leaning towards that testosterone is the driver or the androgens are right, the drivers. Right. Mm. Okay. And so we can conclude that there's a, a genetic component, but it doesn't explain all the pathophysiology. No. 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 We have just published one study in, in human reproduction that we uh, looked into um, psychiatric disorders, um, not just anxiety and depression, but also uh, autos, autos, autism spectrum disorders. And, and, uh, yes. and we did not see a causal effect of PCOS. Okay. Uh, that, or that PCOS causing these disorders. Yeah, yeah. So, which also come to our hypothesis that non-genetic factors likely have a contribution. Yes. So I'll use that as a segue because you've done some work on um, looking at the epigenome or the transcriptome of women with PCOS in, I think, muscle and adipose and even ovarian tissue. Um, yeah, can you describe what you found there? Yeah, we we did um, we have done uh, whole genome uh, DNA methylation studies oh, and, right. whole, uh, and and uh, and gene expression whole genome uh, gene expression with with this Illumina um, uh, four hundred fifty B chip and and twelve H and. We have done it in, in adipose tissue and skeletal muscle. Uh, okay. Ovarian tissue, there it's other researchers that have done that. Right. Um, and and we we find uh, many um, 
differently expressed genes in both adipose tissue and in skeletal muscle. Um, we see also a large number of differently methylated uh, sites. However, um, <laughs> I think in, in the adipose tissue, it was only one or two that were um, passing um, FDR correction, false discovery rate. So, right. um, but likely, I think that is due to the power uh, because you have so many uh, hits, so you need to correct for, so you lose power. Um, and for the muscle, it was one or two the uh, same. But despite that, it's 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 many uh, many thousands of differently methylated sites, which seems to have an impact on the transcriptomic. Interesting. So, um, and and they are also relevant for both reproductive um, dysfunction and uh, maybe. M- even more for the metabolic uh, disorders. Oh, so the changes in the DNA methylation pattern um, are relevant to yeah. the androgens and the insulin. Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I might use that to now go into a really fascinating area of research you've been looking at. Obviously, the epigenome, um, it's sort of in flux th- throughout life and one of the key areas or times where perhaps the epigenome is plastic is around um, the perinatal period. So you've done some um, research around looking at, um, is it women with PCOS and and then animal models of administering testosterone in um, pregnancy and developing a, a PCOS phenotype. Um, so first of all, you, there's this um, DOHAD model, which I've had guests on previously talking about the was it developmental origins of health and disease? Um, maybe can you just frame up your understanding of that as a as a sort of a um, to dive into this topic? Yeah, the developmental original health or DOHAD uh, hypothesis. It's it's the, or the Barker hypothesis. Yeah. David Barker. Yeah, it's it's um, there are some uh, human cohorts that have been studied. Um, we have a Dutch famine uh, that were during the Second World War that they had very uh, restricting restricting on calorie intake for, and they know exactly between which time points uh, this happened, and they know all women who were pregnant or became pregnant during this period, so they could study early pregnancy or mid pregnancy or late pregnancy and follow these offspring. And they see that calorie restriction definitely affects the offspring um, metabolic and cardiovascular health. Uh, They have a much higher risk of developing um, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance as well, and and also cardiovascular disease. Um, We have also one... um, Everkalix. It's a Swedish study that also uh, have been following now, and they they actually, I think they are into the third generation that they see in in an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, also due to calorie restriction. And there is a big Chinese study as well. 
Interesting. And I would say now in, in, in our, <laughs> the latest, it's not calorie restriction that is the main cause. Now we rather have the other, the opposite, that is the, the obesity overnutrition instead. And, and there, um, there are no long enough uh, human studies to study mm. if it is a transgenerational effect. But here there are quite a number of, of human uh, or animal studies or mice studies that they we feed the mice for high fat diet or high fat high sugar diets and uh, study how it affects the offsprings and in subsequent generations as well. So that is something we have done uh, in our research. So we we overfeed the mice or we have them on normal chow and then we we have the overfit plus andrean exposure or normal shao and and uh, andrean exposure to try to understand um both the, the lean pcos phenotype and the obese pcos phenotype how they they are affected their how they affect their offspring yeah and mm. And yeah, what have those um, animal models shown in the the offspring? Did they develop like PCOS like um, a phenotype, both male and fem- uh, female and male um, offspring? Yeah, um, we have we have done a number of, of first generation studies, which means that we we expose the mother, we know that the mother develop a PCOS phenotype, so we can say that the mother are a PCOS mother. And then uh, we follow the offspring and they develop a PCOS-like phenotype with irregular cycles and uh, PCO morphology and, uh, and insulin resistance. More. And, and a very strong effect we see on the um, fat, adipose tissue. They, have, they are more obese, uh, have more fat mass and... Um, we also see adipose tissue dysfunction with enlarged adipocytes and uh, and also dysfunctional gene transcription, which is something that we observed in women with PCOS mm, as well. Mm. So it's it's very close closely related to the women, and this we have seen in females, but also in the in the males. Um, and um, even though it's, it seems that the ma- males are more affected by the obesity, if the mother are obese, right. they, have, they are more affected by that. Whereas in, in female offspring, it's really the androgene that is pushing these symptoms. So what does a male PCOS look like? And is that, that's been detected in, in humans as well, has it not? Yeah, uh, the, yes, the, the the male PCOS. You can, you cannot have polycystic ovaries yeah, if you are a male, but and and I think that is a problem that we have no PCOS. There we have our diagnostic criteria. We we haven't talked about that, but that we have a Rotterdam criteria. There you fulfill two out of three criteria with. Uh, regular cycles, polycystic ovarian morphology, or and hyperandronemia. We have the NIH that you only have uh, hyperandronemia and irregular cycle, and you have the androgen excess 
PCOS society, um, there you should have hyperandinemia and either irregular cycle and polycystic ovaries. Right. So it's very clear cut, although there is a debate which of these criteria you should use. However, in, in males, there are no well-defined, this is a male version of PCOS. What have been observed is that they, they are more obese and they develop, uh, uh, the sons of women with PCOS uh, develop insulin resistance and um, also in indication of, of uh, cardiovascular dysfunction okay. as well. And here I think it's quite interesting, but also the, it's not just the sons, also the brothers of women with PCOS have been studied um, with increased BMI and cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance and also pancreatic beta cell dysfunction. Okay. Mm-hmm. So does this suggest that... Was, I'm sorry. sorry. There, oh, no. there was one, one yeah, very... In, on the recent um, uh, ENDO conference, uh, there was an, an interesting abstract presented um, that they have uh, found like a genetic evidence that men can develop a PCOS-like condition with uh, obesity, male pattern baldness, and, and type 2 diabetes. So yeah, and wow. they had calculated like a PCOS-like risk score. Yes. So does this evidence, um, is that consistent with this theory that in utero there's this, um, it's in, in a hyperandrogen state, um, irrespective if it's male or female? So the, the males, would this suggest there's been an excess of androgen in the utero? Um, yeah, it seems that, the, of course, if you expose the mothers or the mothers have excess uh, androgen levels, it does not only affect the females or the, uh, the girl fetus, it affects both genders. And, um, but, but how they, their, their phenotype is not exactly the same, mm. I would say. Um, and mm. um, we, we have done transgenerational um, experiments also following the male offsprings. And what's that shown? That's shown three generations of dysfunction? Yeah, it, it's not published yet. We, oh. we have submitted it, so it's under review. Um, but it's, uh, it's demonstrating that they, especially the, the metabolic phenotype, the, the, they are more obese and they, have an, they are insulin resistant. Um, in the, and it's, it's strongest, actually, in the third generation. Wow. And um, uh, it's both obesity and androgens that drives there. Whereas in females, we see the strongest driver by androgens. Mm, it's incredible. And there's evidence in humans of um, androgen excess exposure in utero, say in um, the babies and even children who may, and females who may eventually go on to develop PCOS. Like, I don't know if it's a poor proxy or not, like the, the 2D to 4D digit ratio and there's um, measurements on the, is it the, the 
the distance between anus and the um, penis and so forth. Can you ex- explain some of the these features um, and if they're valid sort of markers of androgen excess? Um, yeah, they are. Uh, they they are used as and and many uh, researchers now say that they are strong markers of in utero androgen exposure that you have in uh, this uh, 2D 4D. Um, digit, the ratio is usually less than one in males and, and it's longer than one in females. And, and uh, in women with PCOS, I don't think, I, I'm not 100% sure whether this has been done in, in offspring of PCOS. I don't think so. Okay. But they have shown that women with PCOS have a shorter um, 2D, 4D ratio which is indicative that they have been exposed for androgens in utero. Um, the anogenital distance, AGD, on the other hand, there we have evidence from offspring, the, the, the girls born to a woman with PCOS, they have a longer anogenital distance. That's more consistent. That's more consistent with like a, a sort of a male anatomy. Is that right? That's sort of a, a sort of a masculinized, yeah, anatomy yeah. for a bit of term, yeah. yeah. Oh wow! So and we use we use this our AGD in in our mice studies also and measure that, and it's very consistent. Wow! All right, so could you yeah summarize like this DOHAD model? This uh, uh, probably another question is. Um, it, is there any thoughts on why is it the whether the fir- it's the first generation? Why is there androgen excess in utero? What we know, it's probably less well um, discussed that there's uh, a surge in testosterone in in the placenta. We hear about obviously progesterone test um, estrogen, but lesser discussion on testosterone. So um, yeah, first, can you clarify the the normal flux of testosterone in utero and is there any speculation on why there's elevations in, in these women? Um, always in the normal pregnancy, all sex steroids, both estrogen and androgens, are and progesterone, everything is raised during yes. pregnancy. Uh, it's, it's a thing that happens when, when a woman becomes pregnant. And uh, in women with PCOS, the same happens. They are also increasing, but they already from the beginning have elevated levels. Mm. And these levels are increased even more. Uh, we should really emphasize that that the levels are still within the normal range. It's, okay. it's not that uh, uh, now when we look at the Olympics and so on, that uh, when you <laughs> do doping and so on, that you take excessive levels but they are still within the re- normal range but um, they are elevated and they are elevated throughout the entire pregnancy however um, the placenta is really a barrier between the, mm. the maternal side and the fetal side and it has always been said that the fetus is protected however i think that we have quite an a lot of evidence demonstrating that the placenta function is is not okay in a, a PCOS pregnancy. Uh, we have demonstrated that um, aromatase is, is um, 
disturbed and, and a lot of the stereogenic markers are disturbed in the placenta, which means that due to these disturbances, it can go via the placenta and actually affect the fetus. Um, but it m- might also have direct effects on okay. the fetus. Okay. Mm. All right. So yeah, it's a it's a fascinating uh, model. Um, so yeah, what what's on the horizon to to further elucidate this mechanism or to I suppose refute it? But it sounds like the, the the evidence is pretty strong that it, this is a, a pretty important, if not causal, factor. So yeah, what's on anything on the horizon to to further discover? Yeah, first of all, uh, we need to to learn more about the mechanism, how this is is happening, where to target uh, the treatments, and and this is something we we try to to do by when we do these um, transgenerational experiments, we also collect oocytes in the females' uh, offsprings and and sperm in the in the male offspring to to learn and try to understand the mechanism, what is uh, actually causing this transmission. Um, And we have some indication that it is really driven by uh, epigenetic mechanism Mm. here. And we haven't really discussed or mentioned the AMH. When you expose a pregnant mother, uh, or uh, I would say maybe the mice, pregnant mice to AMH, their offspring are also developing a very classic PCOS-like phenotype and that is transmitted to the third generation. And um, But I would say here, the AMH, uh, what it does is that it is increasing the LH, so that causing an, an testosterone, in, increasing testosterone, so here we need to understand whether this exposure of AMH to the pregnant mice, uh, whether the mechanism is actually driven by androgens or if it is driven by AMH. That right. is one thing. So we need to know what we what to treat. Yes, yes. Um, and also other to find predictive markers. Um, so we can identify these girls early as it is tricky to to diagnose or put a diagnose early in the in the girls, uh, if we have a marker, okay, this girl is at an increased risk, then we can intervene. Mm, mm. Mm. Okay, I look forward to what, uh, what. So what we are uh, want to do is really to to try to understand uh, downstream targets. That is triggered this androgen and AMH yeah. that drives the transmission, and also understand more this uh, epigenetic modifications, and if it is the germ cells that actually drive or not. Um, there we um, uh, currently perform um, in vitro using in vitro fertilization, so we expose mice for for uh, hormones and uh, collect oocytes and fertilize them with the sperm um, that is unaffected. But we also do the other way around. Um, 
to really see if the, the if a male is affected, can they transmit right. a PCOS like phenotype? Interesting. Uh, because then the syndrome is even more widespread mm. compared to what we know today. Mm. <laughs> I was yeah. hoping you'd have more solutions, not create more problems, but <laughs> um, that's the way research <laughs> no, goes sometimes. Um, I want yeah. to ask. Want to ask? There's a couple other. Um, potential factors or drivers that I've I've seen in the research or suggested from um, researchers or experts in the area, and your thoughts on this in compared to the work you've done. So, um, one I've seen on inflammation, some have claimed that's the sort of overarching driver, and epigenetics are causing an alterations in inflammation. Um, so, first of all, is there elevated levels of inflammation in PCOS and any thoughts as the cause or consequence of the condition? Mm. Uh, I, I on, honestly think it's a consequence, um, not a cause. Because um, uh, we we have in in our human studies we oh. have demonstrated that they, as I said, they have an uh, more adipose tissue and they have an mm. large fat cells. And uh, they have a disturbed function in the in especially in the adipose tissue, and I think that is very consistent also in the, our animal models. The adipose tissue seems to be an organ that are really affected, and also um, not just the the skeletal muscle but endometrium, for example. Women with PCOS have pregnancy complications. We know that. Um, not just that they develop gestational diabetes more often, they also uh, are more likely to miscarry and have other pregnancy complications. And um, we know that both the adipose tissue and endometrium, they are very much driven by inflammatory markers as well. And that seems to be worse in, in women with PCOS. Uh, again, what is causing this? We don't know. Mm. We need to know more, understand better the cell composition in the fat and in the endometria. And here we are actually currently working on both fat and endometrium from the same women and trying to do single cell sequencing to, to understand the, the crosstalk between the different cells and and also understand the function in, in these uh, tissues. Okay. But no, I, I cannot, I, I will not say yes or no, but <laughs> my, I do not think that inflammation is uh, the cause. However, we know that autoimmune disease is more common in, in women with PCOS. We know yeah, the high, yeah. the thyroid function, and so on. So it is, yeah. It's, it's right. I would say, a very much unexplored field. Okay. Mm. Another maybe contentious, unknown area is the role of the microbiome. There's a lot of discussion there around. I think they've noted alterations in composition and maybe um, metabolites in women with PCOS. Um, but then, as I understand, like androgens can alter the the composition and function of the microbiome. Um, I think there's been, if I can recall, like a study or maybe it's case studies of um, fecal microbiota transplantation in women PCOS, and that's improved ovarian function. Um, so, yeah, what's your thoughts on the microbiome in, in PCOS? Yeah. 
also an, an, uh, an uh, it's a difficult uh, area. Um, there are they are for sure they have an altered uh, microbiome. Um, uh, the women with PCOS, I think that is no doubt about that. But what is causing that is another thing. Mm. Um, and uh, there are some animal studies, um, a group in US working with electrosol-induced uh, uh, mice model, and that they have done fecal transplant and see that they can actually restore the PCOS phenotype. Uh, we have done the same uh, type of study in the prenatal embryonized study. Uh, we could see that we transferred uh, the microbiome from the mother to the offspring. Mm. It was the same pattern. And then we, we tried to do a transplants uh, to see if we can restore, uh, but we couldn't do that. We couldn't restore. We okay. didn't see. It could induce, but reversal couldn't restore. No. I, I would say that um, we, we dropped that field because it's it's such a big uh, field and um, went for another direction. Okay. But I would say still there is a lot of things to do there. So we will see. Okay. The future will tell. <laughs> All right. I do so not what? have a strong opinion, so Sorry? to say, about it. <laughs> I have not a strong opinion. Okay. I'm, I'm just, uh, there's a need for more research. All right. So now moving on to something, um, uh, you've mentioned obviously the epigenetics and that can seem a little bit, um, I wouldn't say pessimistic is the right word, but um, fixed in the sense, but we know that the epigenome is a little bit fluid and plastic and you seem to have had some um benefits not only PCOS but also changing um, the transcriptome and epigenome in p women with PCOS and that's by been using um, acupuncture surprisingly so can you discuss your research there? Yeah as, as I mentioned from the beginning um, I did some research um, that we uh, found that actually electroacupuncture when we place a needle in the same innervation area as the ovaries and, and then in, in strong in muscles in the leg, we could see that it actually um, lowers their circulating andrean levels mm. and they get slightly more regular cycles. Um, but in the very large study that we did in China, that we really wanted to see whether acupuncture improve ovulation and pregnancy rates we, uh, compared to clomiphene citrate, which is the first-line treatment for fertility. or it, it was at that time when we did it. Now it's it's not. It's yeah. letrozole. Um, but acupuncture cannot compete with uh, clomiphene citrate for fertility. Uh, later on, we have also looked into metabolism, and we have seen that uh, in insulin-resistant women with PCOS, it improves uh, their whole body glucose homeostasis. It's lower HbA1c. And when we look into uh, adipose tissue and skeletal muscle from the same women, uh, we see that it improves uh, 
large number of, of uh, differently expressed genes um, in both fat and muscle, and also DNA methylation, although that was less strong. Again, I think we are we have a very low power there. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and was that similar to the benefits of exercise on the epigenome? Yes, yes. It's very similar to exercise. Wow. And uh, we have um, uh, in this uh, little muscle paper that we published in journal JCEM uh, last year, I think it was. <laughs> um, we we also uh, do use um, like exercise uh, or we use data from previously published uh, single bout of. Uh, exercise and think about of acupuncture and compare and it, it's it's intriguing how similar the effect is and in some cases actually the effect is stronger with electroacupuncture hmm. mm. and have, have you tried to elucidate the mechanism i think i saw somewhere you mentioned that it's mediated by the the nervous system the, yeah. the sympathetic nervous system yeah, we have. I have done quite a lot of, of uh, research on that, and and uh, when you place a needle in in the skeletal muscle, you stimulate the needle, and you you get a sensation. So we know that we activate the sensory nerve afferents, uh, A delta and C fibers. So that is something that we know, and then um, how it regulates the organs then is that regulates or modulates the activity in the uh, sympathetic nervous system and likely also the parasympathetic although it's it's uh, much more difficult to study mm. the, the parasympathetic nerves but we we have used blockers uh, ah. um, both um, alpha beta and, and also uh, uh, parasympathetic blockers and we can see that we completely diminish the effect of uh, electrical stimulation. Ah, incredible. Mm. That's really interesting. Oh, okay, so yeah, p- um, exercise has a benefit and um, yeah. acupuncture and you're determining some of the mechanisms. Fascinating. Now, I wanted to ask you your opinion on a couple of the um, therapies where there's research but um, maybe hype or some contention um, so myo-inositol is a, a sort of an obscure B vitamin, as, as I understand, and it seems to be some benefits in administering to women PCOS. But I'm, I've been curious on why why there's a like a is there a functional deficiency in this inositol? It's not like the women have a poor intake of these precursors. There seems to be some aberrant metabolism of inositol. What's your understanding of an my inositol and how it benefits. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not very much into that, and and um, so I I don't want to go into it in in detail. But yeah, there are some studies, but again, it's exactly as the same for the our own acupuncture studies. They are relatively small, mm. and um, uh, there are no big studies uh, actually demonstrating. Uh, what effect it has and and i honestly i i cannot really explain the mechanism and, and the background <laughs> for acupuncture i really know because we yeah. have studied it in, so in detail so uh, 
you know, uh, we right. haven't looked into it by ourselves. Yeah, it's fine. I'm just yeah curious. Mm-hmm. It's a peculiar thing. Um, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on diets. I think you you're a part of the a um is it a position statement? No, it's a, it's much longer than a position statement. You've um one of the co-authors of a rather lengthy um uh consensus type document, and I think that covered diet. Um, again, there's different views on diet. Is it weight loss? Mm. Um, is it the carbohydrate restriction that has the benefits? Um, is there any sort of consensus or emerging views on um, what is a beneficial diet and and, and why? Uh, again, <laughs> I, I would say that it is the same. Um, the diet, which diet that is uh, the best, and and I would say there is no consensus um, about which diet that is better than the others. There are some. Um, really inter- interesting studies is it's Kirsty Walters, who, who previously were in, in, in uh, Sydney, in Australia, that have done studies in, in this uh, um, DHT-exposed uh, mice model. Oh, yeah. uh, there they really look at the micronutrients and, and different compositions and could see which uh, is the most beneficial mm for improving both hyperandronemia and, and uh, metabolic. Uh, I cannot say it is a very complicated how mm. they did this modeling. Uh, so I can, I can put this reference into, to, mm. so if you are interested sure. so to, to read. But looking into to, um, uh, human uh, data, I would say it, it, there are no consensus yet. And uh, it is really difficult to do diet studies. Um, we have uh, done not a randomized study at all, but it's what we did um, at the obesity unit that we decided to actually screen all women that were uh, referred or accepted to be screened uh, below age of 50. Uh, and they are when they are referred to the uh, obesity unit, they have a BMI over 35 or more. And uh, they either go for medical um, weight reduction or surgery. So we follow those with medical weight reduction. And the medical weight reduction is that they have this very low calorie diet for three months. Um, and after that, they have the support from a nutritionist and so on for a year. And um, we screened a bit less than 300 women. And uh, then we could follow women with PCOS and women without PCOS. And we can see that because this is also something that is debated quite a lot, um, is it more difficult for a woman with PCOS to actually lose weight? Mm. And we see no difference there between women with and without PCOS. Um, however, when we look at um, other metabolic like lipids and, and uh, uh, development of metabolic syndrome and so on, we can see that the women um, with PCOS do not they are not restored uh, to the same extent as it is in the women without right. PCOS. So even though they lose weight, they are not improving in their 
um, yeah, metabolic variables. Wow. So it's not just it's not just the weight we are talking okay. about. It's something else also. Yeah, mm. fascinating. Mm. Um, so you mentioned right at the start that you're curious on non-pharmacological treatments. Um, I'm just curious myself, is there anything on the horizon that piques your interest, anything emerging that may provide some benefit? I think um, it is really important to to try to to do more proper randomized control studies and comparing with with other treatments because um, uh, there still uh, the medical treatment is not good at either mm. for women with PCOS and currently we have an ongoing randomized controlled trial that we compare um, acupuncture with metformin and uh, no treatment or all women receive uh, lifestyle advice and uh, they are either randomized to lifestyle advice, metformin or acupuncture and we treat them for four months and uh, to and the the primary aim is to investigate the uh, improvement in HbA1c and oral glucose tolerance test and in these women <clears throat> we also try to understand the mechanism by taking fat muscle and endometrial biopsies that we do what I mentioned before mm, single mm. cell sequencing both transcriptomic and and DNA methylation at single cell level. Okay, interesting. Yeah, well, you always could do with more um, controlled and and larger studies. So let's see what unfolds mm. there. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up in a moment. Now, I was just wondering. I know it's not you're not in the public sort of health sphere, but I have noticed there are a lot of um, strong views about PCOS and maybe simple treatments and echo chambers from influences and so forth. Um, do you recommend any, is there any resources, um, credible resources you recommend people and practitioners could could follow? You, you said, as I said, you um, published some sort of consensus statement more recently. So have you got any good um, credible sources of um, references to that you could recommend? Um, yeah, first first of all, for, for researchers and practitioners, I, I really hope that they... If, they are members in the Andrew NXS and PCOS Society uh, because it, it's, it's a forum that we really try to keep up with the recent science. And uh, for members, it's uh, there they, they will get what, what is going on and what is happening. And it's really focused. Um, and it is really an international organization. It's small, but it is uh, international. And then I think it is really important that also both researchers and practitioners are active in the uh, patient um, organizations, PCOS awareness, PCOS. Uh, um, um, oh, no, I'm, uh, there are many different PCOS uh, patient organizations, okay. uh, which is really um, active. Um, and it's helping both the practitioners and the patients. And, um, and then, of course, uh, there are a lot of science out there to, to read, and we can give some um, links for that as well. Yeah, certainly we'll do. Yeah. Uh, well, Elizabeth, it's been, yeah, really fascinating to, to get a, a researcher's insights and all the nuances and complexities around PCOS and dive 
um, below just the insulin resistance and hyperandrogenism. Um, congratulations on all the your hard work you've done over the past two decades in this space. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing more of your work and hopefully shedding more light on this uh, really complex pathophysiology. Thank you. Thank you. Nice talking. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.